1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Catherine Powell Warren, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Ghent to talk about her new monograph, Gender and Self-Fashioning at the Intersection of Art and Science, Agnes Bloch, Botany, and Networks in the Dutch 17th Century, out this year, 2024, with the Amsterdam University Press. Hello, Catherine, and welcome to the program. Hello, Yana. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well, thank you. I'm excited to be talking about this book, which has been a long time in the making, and I feel that finally an important woman is getting her due. Yeah,
1: that's wonderful. And it's you've spent a long time with her. Um, you know, how actually, how long have you been with her? How did you come to write this book? <laughs>
2: I began actually when I was working on my PhD in 2016 and I knew I wanted to look at women in the arts and I knew that there had to be more than one or two very famous artists and that's how I came across first Maria Sibylla Merian, the wonderful uh, botanical illustrator and naturalist and then um, who used to do work for Agnes Block, and so I traveled to the Rijksmuseum at Amsterdam, and as is so often the case, a wonderful librarian uh, put in my hands an album of delightful flowers that um, I couldn't stop looking at. And that's how um, I came to devote, oh, six, seven years of uh, time to Agnes Block. (laughs) that's yeah six
1: or seven years sounds about right that's wonderful um yeah just quick note librarians
2: the best people on the planet absolutely they are so kind and they know everything everything everything
1: it's astounding yeah I think we can split the world in between people who understand the glory of the the
2: librarian and the people who are sad and don't know it Absolutely, and in this case, it's you know I had requested I was new to the institution, um, I was very junior. I didn't really know how anything how anything worked. I certainly did not speak Dutch, and this wonderful librarian said if you requested these other materials, I think you'll like what I'm going to bring you. And she brought out this wonderful Florilegium um, illustrated by some of the most famous artists of the 17th century. And all that was known about it was that it had come into the collection um, of the Museum immediately after the Second World War and nobody had looked at it. And she said, I think you'll like this. I mean, how? How much of a uh, wonderful feat of synchronicity that is. Yeah, absolutely. And now the world knows about this
1: through you and her. So thanks to both of you for for Agnes Block.
2: (laughs) Speaking of, you know, who is she? Who is this Agnes Block character You know, she was, um, I think, a fascinating woman. I'd like to think she would have been um, opinionated and very strong-willed. This is a woman who was born in 1629. She was a member of the Mennonite community in the northern Netherlands. Um, What we think of the Netherlands today, at the time, uh, the history is a little bit complicated there. But um, she came to live, she was orphaned at a young age. She came to live in Amsterdam with her aunt and uncle. And uh then she went on to have a life that was really um set to her own path in this sense. She uh, married late, uh, but she was already wealthy she had already done a lot of um uh, self, uh, She was a, uh, a self-taught uh, because, of course, she didn't attend university or anything like that. But she was obviously very smart and uh, was an uncommon reader. She accumulated books and she developed a passion for flowers and plants. And so it was that after her first husband died, um, she bought a country estate out um, near Utrecht. And it was on the water. And this was a common thing for very wealthy people to do. Uh, because you can imagine, Amsterdam in the summer it did not smell all that terrific. And a lot of people just wanted to get out as they do today. In New York, you go to the Hamptons. If you lived in Amsterdam, you went out along the River Vecht, And so she bought a property that was really just a farm. And over the course of three decades or so, she developed it um, to have gardens, uh, a greenhouse. It was a new contraption at the time. Uh, birds. She kept an aviary. She kept an apiary. She amassed a huge collection of watercolors and artworks to the point where uh, people like John Evelyn uh, in England said, if anybody goes to Holland, you have to stop and go visit this woman's garden. So her claim to fame, her posterity, was that um, she was the first person to grow a pineapple to maturity in Northern Europe which I think is wonderful because anybody who's been to Northern Europe knows that this is not pineapple-growing country. So uh, this is, in a nutshell, uh, who this wonderful woman was. And she, over the course of her life, primarily those three decades, she gave work to at least 20 artists. And we're talking about the most famous artists of the time, and that's what I thought was really remarkable.
1: Yeah, I feel like we need to um, to contextualize a little bit. Because when we say Mennonite, that probably evokes some images for the modern reader, which are no longer appropriate, right? The Mennonites were prosperous. They
2: were the like an, a dominant sect here, yeah? Absolutely. Um, so Amsterdam was a bit of a funny place. It's known for its tolerance. And it was the same in the 17th century. So officially, um, the city was a place where the Reformed Church was the official religion. But uh, there were Catholics, there were um, Jews, and there were Mennonites. So there were synagogues, Catholic churches, um, uh, temples, and other meeting houses. Um, These were not uh, very secluded sects uh, at all. They were prosperous. And the Mennonites in particular, um, they're sort of Primary characteristics is that they were a very, they were known to be a very peaceful um, community. So they were not involved, for example, in colonial expansions um, as such. But they were very active traders, and particularly in textiles. And this is what Agnes Block's family did. So they were silk and textile traders. Um, so they were a very prosperous community and they were not uh, marginalized. The only difference is that they could not become mayor, for example, or other official. They couldn't, they would not be part of a civic militia, but otherwise um, uh, there were no uh, real um, barriers or exclusions, but it was a very closely knit community, and I think that's where it matters a little bit because there were a lot of there were a number of major families, and there was a lot of intermarriage, and they kept everything really closely related.
1: Right. Yeah, and I mean, very few people are going to be the Bürgermeister. Like that is the Bürgermeister is not a you know that's a that's that does that doesn't count out much. Um, no. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he is, she's the niece by marriage of Joost van der Vondel of Wandelpark, Park fame. Um, you know, she lived on the Herengracht, which is the Gold Coast of Chicago. So, you know, like, she is one of the wealthiest and most connected women in, in the city
2: absolutely um yes and, and i think what's also to provide context so what's special about her is that uh, women did have limitations and that's the the conclusion i come to in my book which is absolutely there were limitations that existed due to gender so for example uh, she was a passionate of botany and she was self-thought and it, it she required a lot of technical and scientific skills to grow the rare plants that she did, but she could have not joined, for example, the faculty of the Botanical Garden, uh, which a lot of men, many of whom were less, uh, perhaps, uh or no more educated than she was, were able to do. So she could not join the university. She could not join the Royal Society in London, which was really the most important scientific institution of the time. So these were the limits that were imposed upon her. And of course, she would have not um, boarded a ship to go look at flora or fauna elsewhere. So these were the kinds of limits that she experienced. But... Very much as is the case today, how much freedom and how much agency one is able to muster is very dependent on socioeconomic status. And that comes back to your point, which was she was one of the wealthiest women of Amsterdam. So those limits were not um, very real to her in the sense that she managed still, she could still contact the burgomaster, the mayor of Amsterdam, and say, I'd be interested in getting a sample of this. And he would oblige her. So uh, this was absolutely, um, she was able to make up for a lot of the disadvantages of her gender through wealth. Sure. You know, while we're here, though, let's talk for a minute
1: about the position of women in the early modern world. Because a lot of people who aren't historians are going to think that basically women are chattel until I, the 70s of you know the 1970s, not the 1670s um, And that really is this this is a place that we we're, we're right now really changing our opinion on this like we as scholars are writing a new history you know um so yes. i'd like to talk for a minute about like there is kind of the what you you cite it the ad women and stir idea of doing women's history you know so hey, we'll fill our audience in on what that means what i mean by that
2: Yes so it's um you know if you have a collection of entirely male artists for example you have a gallery and they co- they have 50 artists and all of them are male um you can add two or three famous female artists hang their works on the walls and say "ha huh, I have a diverse gallery" but you don't <laughs> you really don't because you've changed nothing um so uh, what a lot of scholars are trying to do today is to go back to the beginning and basically The idea is if you continue to follow the same recipe, if you continue to follow the same methodologies, look for information in the same places and adopt the same assumptions and sort of working hypotheses, not surprisingly, you're going to end up at the same place. So what scholars are finding, what I'm finding, is that women did have agency Um, Agnes Block, for example, she was able to enter into a marriage contract in which she retained all the money that she brought into the marriage uh, upon death. So her money did not pass on to her husband's estate. She got to keep it. Um, and she got part of her husband's estate uh, when she her country house, which she named Pfeifferhof, which translates into Pond Court. So obviously there were many water features. Um, She had a a wonderful provision in her will, which said, if I die first, my husband, her second husband, can continue to live there for two years. Provided that he pays rent and he pays for the upkeep. So this was hers. She was able to direct what she wanted. And there's a wonderful project at the University of Amsterdam called uh, the Freedom of the Streets. And they've been able, the researchers have been able to find that women did navigate around the streets of Amsterdam. They kept kiosks, of course, they were uh, famous traders. So they kept businesses, they helped, and they very much participated. Yeah. again it's not to say that their lives was as easy as those of men they you know if they found the project is very interesting and in that they found that women tended to stay closer to home. They tended not to be out in the evening, for example. So these are all um, clues about what it's like to be a woman. But I think it goes much further than the idea of the woman inside having no say at all and uh, just being there to raise children and make sure that meal is on the table at the appropriate time.
1: Yeah. You know, and if we do, if what we consider history is upper echelons of government and military battles, then we're only going to find men and we're going to think that only men had power. Just so. If we think about history as a collection of people walking around and living their lives, how about that? We're going to find women who matter. Right. And so what you're doing here, as well as letting us know about Agnes, is really um, contributing to a broader understanding of early modern women in a way that hasn't been tainted by the Victorians. Uh. <laughs>
2: yes. And and I think another pitfall, um, particularly as early modernists, what we experience is that the archives are, you know, the archives are so deeply flawed. They're wonderful. There's nothing quite like an afternoon spent in the archives, but they're at the same time so deeply flawed because their origins was to keep track of governments and institutions. And so, there's been a long line, I think, of historians who think if there's no document to prove it, then how can we know for sure? And I, I agree. There's you know, there's a lot of inferences that have to be made. Um, the historian Sadia Hartman calls that a form of scholarly empathy, which is if you keep on voicing the silences that have created the invisibility of women in the first place, you're not helping. So in what I tried to do with Agnes Bloch is that we have only 11 letters, which is actually more than we have for most people. And they're two um, botanical experts in Italy, in Bologna. But in terms of her day-to-day life in Amsterdam and in the Netherlands, there's no record. But I proceeded, I thought, if she was into botany, maybe the famous botanists of the time knew her and sure enough, I found her name mentioned in botanical treatises. And then I was able to find artworks that probably belonged to her. And that's how you can build a network and sort of instead of looking for Agnes Block in the archives, which does not yield a lot. Um, if you start by looking at objects and other sort of trails of associations, I find um, there's really a lot to
0: be discovered.
1: and uh you know now it's a little now it's a little bit easier. Now you've made one more step to being able to, to find this kind of uh slightly occult uh history of how women in the sciences and the Dutch Republic. So, thanks for that. Um <laughs> you know, why are there no artists? You know, why are there no great women artists? Well, we haven't looked for them, you know, we
2: Partly we haven't looked for them, partly because, um, you know, what is art? Uh, The fixation on panel paintings, for example, Um, her collection of art, and she was never really on the radar. And that's one of the things I find astonishing, is that this is a woman who commissioned and gave work to at least 20 artists um, over a period of 30 years or so. But she was never in the sort of collections of great patrons and a big reason for that is because she collected watercolors Mm. of natural history and so is that not art which of course it is and Just even looking at her collection of art, I discovered, uh, I learned more about several women artists. And once again, they're not in the guilds. They're not recognized because, you know, pictures of flowers and watercolor. But so that's, you know, that's one problem. Why have there been no great women artists? What is art? And at the same time, what does it mean to be the author of an artwork? Mm -hmm. These are all assumptions we've made. Mm
1: hmm. All right. So we talked about, you mentioned the Weiverhof quickly. Let's go back. What is this place? Tell me more about
2: this place, the Pond Court. The Pond Court. Um, So this is an estate um, we've seen, we've been fortunate. there have been a lot of terrific um, period uh, shows on television, Um, Downton Abbey, for example, uh, which is one with which most people are familiar. So it was not that. Um, Dutch country houses tended to be far more modest. Uh, It was still a beautiful, big enough house, uh, but it was far more modest than what you'd find, for example, in Downton Abbey. Um, And it was a property, they tended to be much smaller than what you think about an English country and state, because um, quite simply, there's not a lot of land in the Dutch Republic. And so she had a parcel that was on the river there would have been a house. Uh, the house was big enough to have, of course, um, several rooms and a library. We know she had a library. We know she had um, an, a kitchen with uh, access to a flower garden and a kitchen garden and the apiary. So her bees were kept near there. There would have been a um, an Uh, aviary which would be quite large because she kept a lot of exotic birds so this would have been a place where a little bit like you find at a zoo today Um, so there would have been a cage and then there were also some birds that did not fly so there was a place for people to gather and look on and see what the birds were observe them and uh, of course artists would have been able to do the same thing then the biggest, the showpiece of the property would have been uh, that sort of orangery and greenhouse combination where she kept, she, we knew, we found. I found a catalog of the plants that were sold um, when she passed away in 1704. And, and to, again, for listeners, it may sound odd, but plants, uh, they were a rarities. The plants she collected, they were worth an enormous amount of money And um, wealthy and knowledgeable individuals at the time collected plants the way they collected porcelain and coins and medals. So, this was really a status collection in addition to being scientifically very interesting. And there were over a thousand um, specimens that were sold, Um, some very rare. Her collection spanned um, South America, Africa, Indonesia basically the Dutch colonial world, Um, so she had it all. That would have been the showpiece. Um, So this it would have been a pleasant estate uh, that is described in a poem and where people would have been led on the tour and the whole thing would have been um, just peaceful, pleasant, by the water um, and uh, ending the tour would have ended probably uh, through the library. There would have been a room where she kept all of her collections because she also had um, books and medals and coins and arts and everything.
1: You know, so you say, don't think Downton Abbey, think something more, um, you know, more modest, but at the same time, this represents an amazing amount of wealth and power and
2: Holy mackerel, right? Extraordinary. Um, and, and I forgot to mention, there would have probably been um, guest quarters on the estate. And I suspect that artists did come and go and spend time there um, wow. to capture that collection. Her collection was really, she was asking for portraits of her flowers, I think is the best way to think about it um, which is astonishing and because of that um, there would have been something of an artistic community that developed around the property
1: mm-hmm.
2: but, which is fantastic but yes absolutely there was a lot of money an
1: amazing amount of like just resources going into this and then put her in context is this does she stand out for this estate or are there going to be other places similar
2: to this she does stand out um there were other places uh obviously other women there was a woman even uh, named magdalena pool who had an estate with also quite a collection not far from where agnes block was but what was special about her estate um was not the size of the house or even the sort of accoutrements the parterres and the sculptures, uh, but it was the quality of her botanical collection which rivaled those of the botanical gardens in Amsterdam and in Leiden. And in fact, we know that she provided the botanical gardens with many specimens, so she would share with them and they would share with her. So, that's, so there are two things that stand out. The first one is just the sheer quality and quantity of her botanical collection. And the second is her collection of artworks and watercolour. There's no comparable collection by a private individual. Um, So the Botanical Garden commissioned something that was very rich, um, a collection of nine volumes of plants and flowers on parchment, but that was a commission by the city. And she had at least five to six hundred, I would imagine, uh, watercolours um, so her collection was really unrivaled and that made her very special.
1: Um, what does this tell us about like the Dutch and their ideas about themselves and what we're, you know, in this period we're going to come to call
2: the Golden Age? yes. Um the golden age, such a, a tricky term, of course. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but for Agnes Bloch, fair enough, this was a golden period. Um the Dutch were in the 17th century, they were enormously successful, they had established primacy in trade. Uh they were the masters of the seas. And so they were able to go everywhere. They had uh, very wealthy and productive colonies in um Indonesia. Uh, the coast of India Malabar uh, also at uh, in South Africa today so uh, then um, last in South America Brazil um, and uh, Suriname so uh, this was an extraordinarily wealthy country lots of trades they were um, first in trade for grain and, and pretty much anybody who traded to Europe had to come through Amsterdam so they collected a lot of duties and so on. But part of this wealth was to be displayed um, as the Garden of Eden. And the Dutch, um, those who know the history of the Republic, um, fully one third of the land that is there was reclaimed from the sea. So they pumped the water out to make land. Um, So uh, when you land today in Amsterdam, you're actually some three meters below sea level. Uh, So that is part of what they thought as their dominion over nature. They saw themselves as a chosen people living in the Garden of Eden. They had dominion over nature, and there was no better way to demonstrate that and their just incredible um, power in trade and sovereignty as to have those botanical collections. So the nature, the pursuit of nature, the pursuit of gardens is it really becomes um, a national passion, which is why I think it's also it was something that I thought was important to highlight in the book in that this is not a woman who's decided to pursue flowers and she's just an an odd person Mm -hmm. with an odd marginal pastime. She is somebody who really inscribes herself into the national identity. And, and indeed, she chooses for herself to represent, uh, to be represented as Flora Batava. So the Batava is the name uh, that the Dutch gave to themselves uh, in memory of the ancient Batavians who just um, triumphed. And she places herself as the goddess of flowers of the Dutch Republic. And this is her identity. And I think it fits absolutely with what the Dutch thought of themselves and what was happening this was just a, a bubbling country full of creativity and um just might to do things and curiosity
1: yeah you know uh, god may have created the world but the dutch made the netherlands and yes know, and flowers which remain a national obsession um so, you know, you do the math, listeners, if we're talking about how important botanicals are and how important this woman is in the world of botanicals, like, geez, this is a big deal. Um, and so she sits apart here and then we've got this kind of happening in a contemporary contemporaneously, the development of the field of natural history. Um, so what does that involve? What do, what do I mean by the field of natural history?
2: Well, it's, um, you know, there's a, an author whom I admire named um, Eric Yorink, and he's written about reading the book of nature. And uh, there's sort of this shift where religion and devotion to God naturally brings um, devotion to nature and contemplation over the creation of uh the world, but then there's a shift sort of mid-17th century where instead of just contemplating nature and thinking of it as a creation of God, there's this desire desire to start to classify it, to describe it, to understand it. So uh, particularly with botany, which from the Middle Ages had been associated with women and apothecaries and remedy and that whole um the healing, if you will, uh part of, of the world and activity the field of activity all of a sudden it becomes more serious um so it is institutionalized that's when you start having now in italy it begins earlier in the 16th century uh, but the importance of botanical gardens that happens throughout europe including in the dutch republic and as um As these specialties develop and, you know, you have a period of stability after uh, the 30-year war. And so people start learning more and classifying and wanting to know. And then there's in 1660, there's the Royal Society that is founded in London that is specifically to try to encourage this new mode of empiricism. The impact is um, for women is that as this new science The fascination, of course, with um, exploration and colonial expansion comes at the expense of um, what was happening in the domestic world. So much science earlier would have happened in the kitchen, in the apothecary, which was associated with the home. But all of a sudden, there are anatomical theaters, there are botanical gardens, and there are universities and places where people go to do that. Latin becomes the lingua franca. Women don't have access uh, to formal education. And I'm speaking of northern Europe. It was different in Italy. uh, But by and large, um, it's much more difficult to become fluent in Latin if you're a woman than if you are a man. You don't have access to university, um, again, in the north and so you're stuck and women become increasingly marginalized so that's the the development of early modern science um which is on the one hand it's it's wonderful because there's communication you have reports from the 1660s where they talk about um, the experiments that are being carried out and what they're learning and what they're seeing, so there's that dissemination of knowledge, but it also becomes more exclusionary.
1: Mm-hmm. And the quantification and the the you know codifying everything. We've got encyclopedias, we've got plates, ephemera is cap- captured into images that are categorized and sent around. And yeah, that's great, but there's an as things become professionalized, right? We see women and a lot of my a lot of groups become. Um, they're
2: excluded from the production of knowledge. Exactly, and it you know one fabulous example is that the scientists, for example, and, and I refer to the Royal Society because it was probably the most important um, international organization. A lot of people from the Dutch Republic belonged to it, um, so the Royal Society refers consistently to information they get from fishermen about several species of fish or shells that they collect. They rely on indigenous people. They rely on knowledge they obtain from women and a number of other people, but not one of them could ever gain admission into the Royal Society. And indeed, there's no woman in the Royal Society until... Um, I think the date is 1954, something like that. So it's the middle of the 20th uh, century. So the knowledge is still recognized in a way, but it has to be legitimized by somebody else. Right.
1: Okay. Yeah, I get it. And then there's this fashioning process as well, where it's described, and you get to somebody is in charge um, of determining what matters. And I'm, you know, in case let me, God forbid, we have a talk without mentioning or in referencing Foucault somehow, but somebody gets to decide what is important here. Um, That's right. Yeah, and and but that process is important. What's important? Who's in, like, and who who makes knowledge, and what what is worth writing down? What we learn? What what matters? Um. But you see this process as well, kind of in a on a similar frame with the idea of self-fashioning. You know, this is what she's doing as well. Agnes is deciding what what's going to be left for posterity. What is the image she wants to make? What matters? And chapter four is dedicated, you dedicate it to uh, Block's self-fashioning. And I kept thinking, I was thinking, I just kept thinking about this as like this little microcosm of what's happening everywhere else too, right? She's just, but her canvas is herself. Anyway, this is what I was thinking. Please tell me what you were thinking, which is actually <laughs> more the point with this interview. Sorry.
2: No, I, I think you're absolutely right. What's interesting with self-fashioning is that it's a reflection. The more, um, I, I'd like to think that the more aware um, Agnes Block, for example, becomes of what is happening around her. She, you know, um, there's, uh, we would now call Poland, there's a Polish botanist who comes to visit her. There's an English botanist who comes to visit her. She sees people from all over the place. She interacts with people from all over the place. So the more aware she becomes of the world around her, the more aware she becomes or conscious she becomes of how she wants to be perceived. And I think that's a natural impulse. And it occurred in the early modern period just as much as it occurs today. So, you know, you see that with teenagers, which is the larger the school they go to, the more conscious they are about their appearance and what their peers are going to think about them. So that's a little bit the same um, with Agnes Bloch. So as her world expands, she becomes very acutely aware of her place in it and what she wants that place to be. Now, um, uh, listeners, of course, being a mother was important. She was not a mother. She was a stepmother. She never had children of her own. She had many um, god nieces, godchildren. She had nieces, she had nephews, stepchildren, grandchildren. But that's not how she wanted to be remembered. Um, And to this day, a lot of people think of her as the pineapple lady because she made a point of having a portrait of her with two grandchildren and her husband, but the pineapple is there. Mm. And she has a medal. And And when we say medal, um, listeners should understand this is about four inches in diameter. So this is not something you wear around your neck. Mm. Uh, it's a token you display. And if she has it designed and cast in bronze and silver. Apparently, there was a gold exemplar. And on the one side is her, a portrait of her like a Roman emperor. And she's a wizened woman looking into the distance. And on the verso of the medal is her personal motto, which is um, art and science can succeed where nature just doesn't quite uh, reach, where nature falls short. There's flora batava and there's the pineapple. So this part of a very specific iconographic program where she decides how she will be remembered.
1: Yeah, I think the kids would call it curating
2: her brand, right? (laughs) Exactly. She was, you know, in a way she was always curating her brand. And some people think, well, how certain can you be that she was doing that? We have no record. She doesn't write dear diary. I'm very concerned about my posterity. But I think when you take um, the whole, the medal, the portraits of her, um, the fact that in her portrait, for example, she is holding one of her watercolors, you know, so there's there's so much self-reference that it cannot be accidental. I think yeah. And, only.
1: Yeah, and only this. I mean, there's a language too. We understand how portraits are made. We know that you know there's iconogra- gra- iconographic images that that. People put in the, in their portraits an artist's paint to let you know who they are. Like, we know the process that she's following. She didn't invent this. Exactly. She's, she's part of, um, so, you know, how do we know she's doing that the same way we know everyone's doing it?
2: that's right and and she knew she'd grown up around um a very wealthy family that collected art that engaged in those self-fashioning practices you know she was around her both of her husbands her family were involved in the silk trade and she knew you don't make money unless you're recognized as providing something special and her provision of something special was knowledge and the patronage of the arts and that's how she want to be seen
1: yeah. yeah and then another part of her self-fashioning of her kind of her legacy that she's leaving is the Bloomin' book and her 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 collections so you know before we finish up let's let's talk about the bloom book
2: what is this it's first started. the bloom book um it's a wonderful name the bloom book it's uh it's a flower book um, agnes block as i said she commissioned The reason I say five or six hundred watercolors is because we have no definitive inventory. Um, But artworks, so these artworks were on paper. They were made by a variety of artists. Many of them are not signed. And um, what happened, I suspect, is once she felt um, near the 1690s that she had um, her collection, she had a good handle on what it is she wanted to accumulate she had them bound. So these were individual sheets, which eventually were bound into volumes. Only one of these volumes survives. And uh, that is the wonderful book that was presented to me in the Rijksmuseum, which we mentioned at the beginning. And this is an album with, um, I want to say 194 uh, individual sheets and I was about to say in 194 flowers but of course that's not accurate because one of the things that Agnes block did um, which is wonderful is she had several artists um, contribute to a single work so there would be one page where it's clear um, to anybody spending time observing these works that they've made by different artists, the lines are different, some of the things are added. Um, In other parts, she would, she cut out a flower and pasted it onto a page where there was already a flower. So it's a, it's a strange form of record of the collection she has. But these flowers are also exceptionally beautiful. They are works of art in and of themselves. and some of them, uh, some of the works from her collection have become separated from their albums and they are shown in museum and kept as individual works of art. So that is, um, that was the wonderful book. And i like to think of the Blumen book in, in two ways. Uh, in the first way it was a paper garden. It was a record of the flowers that she had grown Um, many of which did not survive. She lost species all the time, as is the want of um, any gardener, you know, that there's sort of inevitable process of decay and death. Um, So it's a way to stop time to memorialize her collection and also to show her visitors, these are the things you can see or you could have seen in my garden. And from the, uh, another perspective, which is uh, theoretical, but it's also a network, it's a materialization of a network of artists who come together in the pages of this book, whether um, Agnes Block put them together after the fact, or whether they worked on one page, passing the sheet back and forth. Um, I, I think this Blumen book then really becomes the essence of what Agnes Block was all about.
1: Yeah, and she, um, you know, so it's this, and it's just gorgeous, right? Like it's just, it's stunning. These images are just beautiful. They're well done,
2: <sighs> and and you can tell she lavished a lot of care. Now, <laughs> we we keep talking about money. Um, it, to be clear for the for the listeners the artists that she commissioned were at the top of their game they were the most in demand so they were not doing her favors i'm certain that she paid dearly for all of these works even though we have no record and they are beautiful and she um and one of the things that led me to conclude that the album was uh, collected collated after the fact is that she organized um, the flowers by species and by color. Now we're talking, um, this is pre-Linnaeus, but so she'll have all of the irises together and she'll have all the blue and purple irises followed by white ones, followed by pink ones. And she does the same with every species and she has all of the vines together and all of her climbing plants. So this is evidence of a person who, didn't just commission and say, didn't send an artist to say, I want you to paint everything that's in my greenhouse, but she knew what she was requesting. And on several of these works, now not in a blooming book, uh, but many hundreds of her works have found themselves uh, in museums all around the world. And on some of them, we know that they came from her collection because she will make a note, this plant bloomed in July 1685. It's from, it was painted by, um, you know, uh, Maria Monix and or Herman Softleven and uh, then she'll have a little note even of which botanical treatises she can you can refer to if you want more information. So it's a, it's a living testament to what she did. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and how uh, you know where she sits in the middle of this creation of knowledge as well and knowledge production um you know you, before linnaeus when that's it's still open for interpretation we there's a contest or it's contested anyway like how how you care, how do you categorize these plants how,
2: you know that's that's a thing she gets to do Absolutely. There's no um, standard taxonomy and there's no uh, nomenclature. Uh, But so you can tell she she reads, she informs herself and these notes sort of say, I'm aware of what is going on. I know what is happening and um, that's so important. And the more we're exploring, a wonderful um, side effect of the recent focus of scholars on women artists and patrons is that there are now more and more people looking through their collections. And these, so many of these drawings are in private hands and they're popping up or they're in museum collections and they've never been catalogued, and now they are. And um, I've been working with the Fitzwilliam Museum, uh, particularly Henrietta Ward, who's curator there, and we've set for ourselves a mission of trying to get an understanding of how large that collection was. And um, certainly there's a partial inventory that used to say the standard figure was about 400 works, but it might have been easily doubled. That is what we're finding. And we're following her annotations. Wonderful! That's so cool.
1: <laughs> oh, that's really exciting. God, I'm, i kind of—I've got about ten more tangents that I want to go on, but let's just let's call it. We've got a great, we've got a good talk here, and you really—I mean, we think we've really demonstrated the importance of gender self-fashioning and this network that she creates, and the importance of Agnes Block. So we're good. So I've just got one more question. What What are you
2: doing now? What's next? This The sky's in your hands. This book, yay, covers. <laughs> This book is here. Um, I just completed uh, a monograph on Maria Sibylla Merian, um, which I'm very excited about. Uh, that will be published by Lund Humphreys. And I'm looking still at the women who worked for Agnes Block, And I'm looking, trying to understand what it meant to collaborate artistically if you're a woman um, at that time. So it's very exciting.
1: Yeah, that's very exciting. That's going to be a lot of fun work. Congratulations on that. All right. Hey, thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, and setting aside some time so we could have this chat. Um, and I have really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you. Um, it was a wonderful opportunity. Really enjoyed it.
1: All right, and uh, yeah, we'll talk for the next one.